a little moment of panic there. I looked over here and I was like, our acolytes are getting a little bit older. Not you ladies, but right here. And then I found you here and I was like, okay, I can do this. Because in my mind, you know, you got to practice. Now, I want to look at our Philippians text today. And I kind of want to unpack that text verse by verse together. Now, before we do that, I've heard it said that what we do defines who we are. I've also heard that who we are determines what we do. I've also heard that it's not what you do, but how you do it, that first you have to visualize it, and then you can go and do it. And I've also heard if you take care of the little things, say with me if you'd like to, then the big things will take care of themselves. Yeah, I've heard a few of these. Maybe you have too. It's my uh, grandfather's 80th birthday. He's probably heard way more than it. That's two old jokes. I'm done with that. Now, we're moving on. Uh, I'm not too sure what kind of sayings or understandings were going on in the time of the Apostle Paul. I don't know what the uh, saddle stickers, it's a bumper sticker, what those were that you would slap on your horse back in the day. But I don't think that in this text, Paul was setting out to do that. He wasn't trying to create a new saying here or a new slogan. He wasn't trying to decide what's coming first, chicken, egg, sandals with socks, sandals without, Team Edward or Jacob, none of that. I'm convinced that in this text, Paul's simply talking about being, he's talking about doing, He's talking about thinking, and he's talking about receiving. And that I'm convinced of. And whenever you get to talk about Paul, if you can work in the, for I am convinced of Paul for saying this, because he always says it, always a good thing, try it, you'll see that I'm right. Now, Paul seems in the text to be talking about this, this space. This space between what we think and how we act. And the space between how we think and what we act, there's a lot of life happening. A lot of things go on in that moment, in that time. Some of it happens at night when we're going to go on over the day or thinking about what's coming the next day. Some of it happens in the shower. Some of it happens during sermons when you're thinking about brunch, waffle, omelet, waffle, waffle. But usually in that space, there's two perspectives competing. There's one of anxiety and there's one of peace. And in the perspective of anxiety, there always seems to be this edginess, this dread feeling, this I can't relax, can't let my guard down, worry, a cascading waterfall of what ifs. What if I don't get this job? What if I don't get into this college? What if they don't move out of the house? What if I can't take care of them? What if this never happens for our family? What if, what if? And for our text today, I want to define anxiety by combining those two words, angst and shush. Now, before we do that, I have to mention that if you suffer from anxiety or from crippling worry, I want to be the first one to tell you it's okay to go and find help if you need it. God works through the doctors and through medicine and through counseling. So if you suffer from mental illness, then I encourage you to take that step and to get the help that you need. Mental illness is a real thing. We can't just say, well, if you had more faith, then, then you'd be good. If we broke your arm and the bone was sticking out of it, I wouldn't say, well, if you had more faith, it would, it would heal up. It's okay to get that help. And if you've already gotten the help, good, stick to your care plan. But if you're not and you're on that edge, then I would encourage you to take that next step. 
But for our purpose today, I want to define anxiety not by the medical definition of it, but rather as a hybrid of angst and shush. So here's what I mean about that. Angst being a sense of unease and shush being that sound when you walk up about 12 stairs and you start going shush, or like when they tell you you've got the big bell this week, you say shush, right? You know, it's, it's that feeling. One book that I read describes it as these people who are out of breath because the angst of life takes away our breath. Max Ocato tells a story of the native Hawaiian word that is to use to describe non-Hawaiians called heole. Now heole is this Hawaiian word for no breath. And back in the day when the European immigrants of the 1820s were coming in and they were building their, their plantations, their harbors, and their ranches to the native Hawaiians, they were always moving so hurryful, so rushful, that they looked like they just were always short of breath. And like I said, anxiety has a way of taking away our breath, taking away our sleep, our energy, our peace. And I'll let you go and look at the statistics of the epidemic that is working its way through our young people, our youth, our college kids, our working class, our retirees, to sum up everyone. And you can pick what cause you think it is, whether it's screens or the news or how fast everything's moving, but I'll draw your attention that before you pick what new thing it is, that it certainly must have been an issue at least 2,000 years ago as well, and probably even longer than that. There's not too many books in the New Testament that don't mention anxiety. The Gospels call it worrying. Jesus reminds his disciples, don't worry, take heart, I have overcome the world. There are letters reminding us to cast our anxieties and our worries on him because he cares for us. Angst, anxiety, and its very ugly cousin, fear, have been around for a long time. And so the Apostle Paul, I think, strings together these six verses to remind us and to bring us into that space between what we think and what we do and to not let anxiety have its way in that space, but rather peace. So let's dive into the text together. We start at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now rejoice here in the Greek is a command. Rejoice is not a choice, it's a command. Paul, foreseeing this, knowing that it would one day be translated into English, chose to repeat it in case you didn't get it. Now, you'll remember that when Paul is writing this command, he's writing in prison. He's also writing after suffering some bad things on account of his Lord, including beatings and shipwrecks, stonings, and the worry and anxiety of life. So if there was ever anyone who was ever going to take the stance of stop crying, do some push-ups, stop being anxious, and go, it is Paul right here. Not to mention that his problems and the problems that he's seen are far more difficult and hard than ours or yours or however you want to see it. And yet that's not the tone at all of this letter. No, is it the tone of how you should read this sentence of rejoice in the Lord always. This is one like when Jesus comes alongside his disciples who keep falling asleep in the garden and he says, come on, stay up. Can't you stay awake and pray? It's like when they don't get it over a parable and he has to gently explain it to them or when they argue over who the best is going to be. There is a tone of seriousness in this command for sure, 
but it is one that is given in love and in understanding. One in coming alongside, not talking down to, but being sympathetic, which is why I think he writes the next part. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness as in the way that we explain something to someone. We don't walk up and be like, oh, do you not get this? Let me, who is so smart, explain it to you. But rather we gently come. The way our heart is towards someone. And it's very hard to be gentle with people if we're always thinking about the what-ifs that might happen. It's hard to be gentle to others if we're not being gentle to ourselves. And so I read that next part, the Lord is near. And at first I was like, yeah, that's good. God is with us. But actually, that's not what that part is saying. I mean, God is with us, so don't hear me wrong on that. But what it's saying here is that God is returning soon. Christ is coming back. He could come back at any moment. So your gentleness, your presence, your mindset, your actions need to become a constant reminder to people that the Lord is coming back. And how do we do that? Well, because when we live in the perspective of heaven, we don't have to worry. If I know that at the very end in heaven, I will be holding my daughter's hand, I don't have to have as much anxiety wondering if she's going to turn out okay for what could compare with her eternity. Now, I still have to be a good parent and I still have to do the right thing. There's still a lot of work to be done, but because the Lord is returning, I can be gentle as I do it gentle to her and to myself for the mistakes and for the sins, remembering that love covers a multitude of sins. And then we get to our big verse for the day, verse 6. I'm going to be honest with you, when I read it first, I didn't get past the first six words. I read, do not be anxious about anything. Sometimes I read those first six words and I'm like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix Reloaded when on the TV screens he has all those emotions at once. Where's my nerd? Where are we looking at? Who's got my head nod? There it is. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. Now, I read that and the first thing I think is, oh great, now I'm anxious about not supposed to being anxious. I move on then into my sarcasm where I say, okay, well, I mean, if you say so, I guess I'm not anxious anymore because you told me not to be, so then it's all good now. And I move from rage and sarcasm into guilt and shame. That part about why do I get anxious? What's, what's wrong with me? Maybe I'm outside his grace. Maybe I don't have enough faith. And I get to this place where it's like, okay, if I can't do this, if this is impossible, then what does that mean? Is this just one of those things that the Bible says? Because anxiety is bigger than me. Anxiety overwhelms me. And I struggle with what to do in the face of real worry and fear and what seems to just be a never-ending list of things that could go wrong. And after like an emotion of, no, an ocean of emotions, you know, lots of waves, I stop I don't go on because really well, it's just going to be more words and I don't really need that or a bumper sticker like I was talking about before that's just going to make me feel better for a day and then I'm going to get back into the realities of life. So what do I do? 
Usually when I look at something, that's how I respond. What do I do? What am I going to do? I'm going to start with me. But interestingly enough, Paul doesn't talk about me. He starts with God. If you go back to verse 4, notice where the text starts. Paul does not start with anxiety, which is where I usually start with the things that I'm dealing with right now. But he starts with the perspective of God and how we can rejoice in that. That's where he starts. And then in his next sentence, he finishes with where we will end, with God at his return. Paul does not start where the problem was, where the anxiety can then have its way. He starts where there is no anxiety, in the Lord and in his goodness and in the beginning. And he finishes in the sovereignty and grace of God where there is also no anxiety. And I'm here to remind you that there is no feeling or circumstance in the space of those two two things that will ever change those two facts. There is no what if that will change the reality of our God. That's the eternal reality. And so if you are ready to fight in the now, to not give up against the overwhelming odds, if you are ready to bring the eternal perspective into the space between how we think and act, if you are tired of the power that anxiety has over you, then I say, here we go in the next line. This is where it starts. It starts by fighting anxiety with prayer. Because when you start and end with Christ and his word and you believe what it proclaims, that victory is ours in Christ Jesus on account of his death and resurrection, then the battle is not the removal of anxiety from our life, but rather the battle begins turning anxiety into prayers. Paul takes a feeling and combats it with not another feeling, but a gift from God, the gift of prayer. The ability to go to God with anything. And Paul never makes your anxiety something you can somehow get over, but instead one that will drive you to rely and trust in God, to go to Him with what you need. It's what the community of God does as we gather to pray. It's why there's 150 psalms covering every feeling and emotion that you can have in prayer. It's why there are countless examples of him in the Old and New Testament and in the saints that are around us now of trusting and relying in God in prayer. Thanking him for what he has done. Complaining to him about what he hasn't. And never stopping to worry but starting to pray. You take the things that leave you restless and without breath and rather than let them have space in your life, you give them to God. And here's what he gives you. Verse 7, the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Not something you'll be able to logically work out. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace. Two choices in between what we think and do, anxiety or peace. One we've talked about, the other, peace. Peace brings sleep. Peace brings calmness, wholeness. It brings hope. Peace does not ask what if, it tells what is. 
and this word guard here. God himself stands like a soldier protecting your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, fighting the cosmic battle against the unseen things. We don't stand alone. And prayer becomes the experience that we have to experience the peace of God. And finally, we move our prayer life from before meals, before bedtime, before maybe when we get up or when we're doing devotions, to a life of constant prayer. What does that look like? Where do I start? You start with little tiny arrow prayers like Nehemiah did. Walking into the presence of the king, he just simply said, Lord, be with me in this. No falling to the knees, no long prayer, just a quick little arrow. And it moves into teaching other people that. Going into your child's room at night and praying over them. If your child has moved out, then you still pray for them. It's finding people to pray with. Having prayer partners, having groups, becoming a person covered in prayer. Putting away our phone, picking up prayer instead. Because we will battle anxiety with prayer, and in that, Christ begins to renew our minds. Look at these things that he uses to renew our minds. Look at the pairs, true and noble, right and pure, lovely and admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. What we put into our mind determines what comes out in our words and our actions. So when we take a hard look at what is going into our mind, digital marketing experts agree that the average American is between 4,000 and 10,000 different things exposed to each day, whether that's brands or direct advertising or indirect. Open your cupboard. All you got to do is you've got 100 of them right there. It's everywhere. Advertisements competing for your attention, telling you who to be and what to do. But this, again, isn't new. Go back to Proverbs and see. Wisdom in the Spirit stands and calls out, yet so does folly and the rest. But one is good for your soul. One is good for your life. So we examine what we're putting into our mind, and above all, we read God's Word and meditate on that. And we find ourselves reading and living, living and reading, praying and living, living and praying. A constant cycle that is unbroken. Because as Paul concludes in his little string of verses here, whatever you learned or received or seen, do. Paul calls us to go and to live. He starts with believing in the victory of Christ and in the power of his resurrection, the power that prayer has and the power of his word. He says that is what is going to rule your heart, not angst or fear. And then he instructs you to let that have room, to let it grow in your home by praying, thinking, reflecting, rejoicing, and then getting out and going. I was talking to one of my friends, and they talked about pitchers who struggle with this. They struggle with the result of getting the strikeout. And when all they can think about is the strikeout, the what if I don't strike out this guy, what if I do strike out this guy, then I might get to go to college or I might get a bigger contract. Instead of focusing on the result, when they start to focus on the things leading up to it, the little things about where their arm release is going to be, the mechanics, 
when they take the things that they have spent hours and years practicing and doing those, then the results, the results will be what they will be. Think about us. Years and a lifetime spending time in his word and spending time in his prayer. When the things that make us anxious, we immediately turn to God. What happens then when the big unforeseen things of life come? We're prepared. There's no room for anxiety. Only God's peace. For though anxiety roars around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. We know that God shuts the mouths of lions. We know that God brings peace. And we know that prayer is what he has given us in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, for Christ, all of that to fight. So now I think that we should do what we, what Paul says. We'll stand We'll sing and rejoice, and we'll pray.